0: Thank you all for leading us well this morning. I'd ask if you would pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning as children who need to hear from you. Our prayer that you would speak is not just empty words, but in fact, it is truth that we confess without you, we are nothing and that we need you, Lord. We need to hear from you. We need to be reminded that your word is true. It's forever settled in heaven. It is enduring, and it applies to us, your people, in every generation, in every age. These are timeless truths, and they're yet applicable to us. That's the power of your word. And with a mighty voice, we praise you this morning, Lord. Praise belongs to you. And we will... Fulfill our vows to you as your people. You've answered our prayers. How can we not come to you this morning with confidence that you will answer even these prayers that you would speak to your people this morning? Though at times we may be overwhelmed by our sins, we know that you forgive them all in Jesus Christ. It is our joy that you choose to bring us near you. It is our joy and privilege that you draw us into your holy courts and You have plans for us that are good and godly and wise. Plans that are meant for our well-being. You answer our prayers with awesome deeds, because you are a good God. You are the hope of everyone on earth, even those who live on distant in distant places. You formed the mountains by your power. You armed yourself with mighty strength. You quieted the raging oceans. And their pounding waves, you silenced the shouts of warring nations. Those who live at the ends of the earth, they stand in awe of your wonders. Your wonders. Lord, you are worthy. You are our Lord, our God. It is right that we give you glory and honor and power. They belong to you. And we should praise you because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would come quickly, that you would reign on your throne. And we confess that even now something rises up within the heart of your people. It tries to take possession of your throne. It could be pride, it could be covetousness, a multitude of vices, laziness. Those things want to be kings of our lives. And they're followed by anger and hatred and evil speaking and a whole host of other sins. They're trying to reign over us and we resist them by the strength that you provide. We cry out against them and we say we have no other king than Christ. And so, O King of Peace, come and reign in us. Almighty, gracious Father, since our salvation depends on our true understanding of your Holy Word, grant that our hearts would be freed from worldly affairs this morning. May we hear and understand your word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, that we will cherish it and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you would join me in opening your copy of the scriptures and make your way to the book of 1 Thessalonians, this morning we're going to be working our way through chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Actually, this passage goes all the way into chapter 3 and verse 13, so thank you. (laughs) We're not going to cover it all today. We're going to split it up over two weeks, but we're going to stop at verse 16 this morning. So I'm going to read God's Word, and I hope that uh, you will follow along. I didn't look. I should have done that. I, I think it's always a helpful thing if you're visiting with us, and maybe you're totally unaware of how Bibles work. There is one in the, in the chair in front of you, and um, <clears throat> there's, there's a table of contents in the front. I, I should have looked to see what page it was that would have helped you out greatly. My apologies for that. But uh, take advantage, there it is, see somebody's doing their job, great, thank you, page 986. So if you don't have a copy, um, let, take that, okay, it's okay, you're not stealing from the church because we are all here and we just said you can have it as a gift from South Canyon to you if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love for you to have that this morning. So please hear from God's word in 1 Thessalonians beginning in chapter 2 verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you, received, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write its truths upon our hearts. Father, we simply ask that you would, in fact, do that, that you would take these truths and plant them deep in us, that you would help us to understand what this text is saying and how it applies to us today. Build your church upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to help you out here because I'm a little lazy, and I didn't uh, create a, um, an outline so that Kristen could work that into the slides for today. Um, so I, I see this passage, these 16 verses, breaking in two main sections. In the first 12 verses, Paul is, is really, in a sense, rehearsing he and his companions' ministry in this church, however long ago it was. And so he's talking about their character and the content of their gospel ministry while they were with the Thessalonians. You notice, if you look back at those first 12 verses, how many times Paul uses the plural pronoun, we, us, our. I mean, he's just talking about how they conducted themselves in the presence of this church. Then in verses 13 through 16, he kind of pivots as he reflects on the responses of the church to the gospel ministry. And he's contrasting the church's positive response to the negative response of those who are actually not just rejecting the gospel, but trying to tamp it down, trying to snuff it out. So you'll notice there in verses 13 and 14, he's now talking about you, you Christians in Thessalonica, you guys responded this way. This is what you did, you understood these things. And then he returns to a collective us in verse 15, in the first part of verse 16, which I understand, Paul's not speaking of himself and his companions, but the whole church as he connects them with, you guys are suffering just like the church in Judea did. They suffered at the hands of the Jews, you guys are suffering at the hands of Gentiles who are resisting the gospel. And so the church shares a commonality with one another when we suffer for the gospel, and then he goes to a them, this wrong response to the gospel at the end of verse 16, those who reject and hinder it. So I want us to just consider this. And I don't know if you've taken advantage of that, that uh, sermon series card that came out a little while ago. I believe there's some out in the foyer somewhere on a table, and they walk you through what the passages we are going to be working through in the book of First Thessalonians. But I hope that if you read through this text this week, you were struck by the fact of just how these men conducted themselves in this church. And maybe, maybe the the characteristics that are spoken of and written of in this text reminded you, hopefully, of a good elder here at South Canyon. So I want us to first think and consider the first 12 verses uh, reflect on this, all right? Here's the big idea of, of the text as I understand it. And I'm going to use some Beatitude language, okay? Old King James here. Not me. In case you don't know, King James, that's a translation. That's not me, all right? So just, just to clarify that. Blessed is the church which has faithful elders who serve the gospel and the church. Blessed is the church who has faithful elders who serve the gospel and serve the church. I want you to see how this comes where this comes from, verses 1 through 12. The blessed ministry of faithful elders who serve the gospel. And then in verses 13 through 16, we are going to see a church's right response to gospel ministry. So, as you look at the text, what does Paul say right at the beginning? that when they came to the church in Thessalonica, there was no church. When they first came to Thessalonica, they had actually been pushed out of the city of Philippi. They had traveled many miles to get to Thessalonica, and they were starting to share the gospel and preach and teach in Jewish synagogues and in the streets and the marketplaces, and people started coming to hear what it is, this message, that Paul and his companions had. And over time, they believed the message, and they received it, and they became Christians, and then they became followers of Christ. And Paul says, you guys remember this, that in spite of persecution, that we came to you eager to share the gospel. I mean, you think about this. So oftentimes, we respond to circumstances in our life, and it shuts us down from ministering to others. But that's not how Paul and his companions responded. They leaned into it and they continued on with their calling. It's not that they neglected responsibilities. It's not that they were iron men, Tony Starks, in bulletproof suits. They suffered. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison, Paul and Silas were. And yet... They wanted to share this message. And in verse 1 and 2, they had a boldness to declare God to you, to share the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And notice also, not only did these men, does it speak to the nature of their character that they labored in the gospel even as they suffered for it. They didn't shrink back from truth because it cost them something. But Paul reminds them that it wasn't a wasted exercise. You guys believed what we said. You believed the message that we shared. You are the fruit of this gospel ministry. Further, Paul makes it very clear that the message that the Thessalonians heard was the truth. Now, it may be that Paul's departure from the the city of Thessalonica was so abrupt that the The Gentiles who'd risen up against this church to persecute it as a result of being instigated from Jews who came from Philippi down here, I mean, like trouble follows, right? So the Jews came, they incited the Gentiles to turn against the Christians here, Paul gets run out of town, and perhaps, perhaps there were people that were saying, see, this guy, he's a coward. When the stuff started hitting the ceiling, he took off, he left you guys high and dry. He's a shyster. He's a charlatan. He was just trying to build a church for his own following. He was trying to extort from you money. He was trying to manipulate you. And at the first sign of trouble, he cuts and runs. Paul's like, that's not the case at all. I want you guys to know that when we were there, there was no effort for us on our part to seduce, to corrupt, to mislead, to exploit those who were hearing our messages. There was no effort to gain a cult following around us. We were just simply doing what the Old Testament prophets did. They were speaking God's word to the people. He says this in verses 3 through 5. You see, the prophets, they understood their message was not inherently their message. They were just mouthpieces. So here I am, standing here today, not with something that I've contrived of my own, will mind experience or education i'm opening god's word to you his people and i'm asking you to hear his word and understand it's his message for you it's his message for us and notice the ministry of the word was accompanied by a godly example Not only was the apostle and his companions not at all tempted to improvise, adapt, shrink back the message, cater it, polish it, shine it, reduce it, so that it was more palatable to people to hear. They were bold in sharing it, but they also understood that that message had to come with an example, a life that backed it up. And look at what we see in verse 6 and 7, that this was a godly ministry of gentleness a ministry where the apostle and his companions weren't leeching off of this new church. They were supporting themselves financially. Now, let me just say, as one who's supported by the church, thank you. I do appreciate it. But the apostle was there on virgin territory where the gospel had never been, and he is doing a work where he is supporting himself so that he can share the gospel and these new converts can have time to understand it, he is not asking them to support him with a salary. Verses 8 and 9 make that clear. And look at verse 10, he's above reproach. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Now I I want the church to hear me speak to my fellow elders for a moment. Brother pastors, our teaching, our shepherding, our oversight ought to be marked by a mother's tenderness and a father's strength. Paul emphasizes the mother's tenderness and the life-giving role to describe the manner in which this gospel team conducted themselves among the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, a woman who is willing to give up her own life for her children. Literally, life is leaving her body to sustain a child. If we are endeavoring, if we are working to influence policy, to build a platform, to curate a brand for ourselves. We are not pastoring, brothers. We are posturing. That may just be a little play on words, but there is a big difference. Paul also highlights the Father's teaching, the Father's exhortation, and the Father's example. We need to speak the truth in love And remember that our leadership as elders in South Canyon Baptist Church is ultimately in service to our king and the chief shepherd and his church. It is not for our personal gain. And it will require us to serve this congregation at our own personal cost. There's no denying that an elder will have to give up time with his family or other pursuits or interests to shepherd the flock of God. And I don't think any of us need to worry about neglecting our responsibilities at home or work. Maybe the bigger challenge is that we need to invest more time in the ministry we've been entrusted with. Discipling members, sharing the gospel with unbelievers, visiting the sick, helping the weak. Our work is not just collectively meeting on a certain night or a certain time to deliberate decisions and policies for the church, but it's also to care for God's sheep, to be out and among them, to know them and be known by them. Now, we talked about this. Uh, How did Paul mean these two images, these analogies that he drew from parenting, a mother and a father? Is that is Paul just gender stereotyping? Is he is he glossing over the fact I don't think so, right? Because we all know moms exhort, don't they? Moms sometimes discipline, don't they? Dads sometimes are tender. So I, I mean, Paul is not trying to do a broad brush. I think what he's saying is he's taking two very prominent realities of parenting and he's showing how they complement one another in ministry within the church. If, if the elders of a church are soft, that may be good where tenderness is needed. It's not so good where courage and example are needed. We don't need moldable, weak men. We need leaders, but those leaders need to be tender too. They need to have character. They can't just tell you one thing and live a different way. They've got to have character. And Paul, I think, uses these two images to demonstrate both the diversity and the dedication and the devotion of their ministry among the Thessalonians. So, brother pastors, let us pray that God would mark our own ministry here at South Canyon in such a way. Now, church... Brothers and sisters, you've been listening to me lecture a little bit at, at the, the guys. Let me, what's the church's responsibility? Like, how does the church respond to it? My guess is that South Canyon wants elders like Paul and his companions guiding, teaching, and helping you. And maybe you're wondering, do these guys still exist? Are they out there? Do we have to go on a job board somewhere and try to track them down? And we're lucky if we find one, but I, I don't believe that's the way that works. We want to be led by gifted and godly men, but how do we find them? We need to remember this, okay? As it was said in our life class this morning by Joel, the church body is the household of God. It is the pillar and the buttress of truth, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. And therefore, it is the church, not the elders, who are entrusted with preserving sound doctrine and rejecting anything that does not agree with the words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that helps one grow in godliness. A church that abdicates its responsibility to know God's word is a church that is susceptible to being led away from the faith. And so, again, to promote these sermon cards, it's a great thing because you know where we're going, and it's not just for those interested among us, those that have some initiative, it's so that you can read these passages before we get to them and you can think on them yourself so that when you come and hear the word preached, you're saying, yes, amen, that is true. That's in my Bible too. I see where the pastor got that. I know he's preaching to us the word of God. He's not sharing his opinions. It's not enough that a church knows the Word. A church must also do what South Canyon has done, identify and develop men who will faithfully exposit the Word. And in, in our labor as a church to raise up godly men to be elders, we must not overlook character for convenience or else we will do harm to the gospel and ourselves. Rushing to place unqualified or immature or inexperienced men in leadership is only going to hurt us. And thankfully, God's provided direction for both the church and its elders. He's given us His Word that lays out truth that's to be taught. And He tells us what of the character is required to be an elder. And again, it's not perfection because none of us are, only Jesus was. But it's a manner of growing in grace and not being hindered by besetting sins. The church, the church is responsible to maintain a spirit-filled, word-centered gospel ministry that's led by humble, faithful, and godly men. And yet God has given to the church the gift of elders who do have a role, a responsibility to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The church, as God designed it, though, only works when we are known and loved and where am I getting this? It seems like James is all on a tangent, and he's just kind of launching into some ecclesiology, or maybe he's got some bad history. He's just working out in our presence. I want you to go back. I don't know if you can do it right here in this moment, but if you look at these first, uh, well, the whole book as a whole, but even here in chapter 1 and 2, it's very apparent to me how many times Paul, in his writing to this church, says, you know, You know. It's all over the place. Paul is not only comfortable with these people and known by these people, but he knows them. He knows what he's taught them, and he knows they know his life. What I'm trying to get at is the way the church is designed by God to function is that we are not a group of strangers who are gathering together for a rock concert. We are a group of brothers and sisters bought by the blood who are gathering to worship our God. And we know each other. And we are excited about seeing one another. And we are know the character of the men that are leading us and shepherding us. Not that we come in and sneak out as quick as possible and we have no interactions. We need to function as God intended the church to function, by knowing one another. That's the only way it works. So our Christian witness, our Christian mission, our Christian community is a public one. It's shared and observable to all who know us. Now, it is true. It's likely in a church this size that you won't know everyone But here's the reality. Every member ought to be known by an elder. Every member won't know every member, perhaps. But every member ought to be known by an elder. And every member ought to be known by another member. You know, and the vehicle that we use to foster that, kind of knowing one another, is life groups. And we don't even need that structure because guess what? I bump into some of you in the grocery store or the restaurant, or at the park, down whatever it is where there's ice skating in the winter and it's nice turf in the summer. Whatever that space is called. I'm still new here. I know there's an ice cream shop really close to it, and that's good. So what we can do is make time to develop relationships with each other. And I can't stress enough how important this is. To be known and to know people. So, this morning after church, why not invite somebody out to Taco John's or Culver's or something? Invite them over to your home. Get together in the morning during the week for a Bible reading before you head off to work. Share, sit down over a cup of coffee in the afternoon. Invite people that you don't know into your home for dinner or go for a walk. And as you're walking and interacting with one another, don't just talk about the the weather. I was going to say the sports team, but South Dakota is kind of a little vacuum on big sports teams there. So, But here's some helpful suggestions to guide these conversations to help you get to know not just your biographical data, but one another spiritually. Share specific ways you've grown in your understanding of the Christian life. That will be a helpful way to get to know one another spiritually or share particular ways you've grown in your practice of the Christian life I wasn't reading the Bible regularly I am doing that more now and I see how it's changing me and my attitudes and my thoughts I'm memorizing scripture now I'm sharing the gospel with people I meet I'm not just so quick to get out of situations but I'm willing to lean into them and care for other people how do you practice the Christian faith? Maybe even share areas you're disappointed in your pursuit of holiness. You know, I'm struggling. I, I was on the computer the other day and an image came up and I didn't move away from that screen as fast as I should have. I'm disappointed by that. I mean, we are not perfect people, so let's not pretend we are. We need to talk about both what God is doing and where God still needs to work in our lives. We need to bear one another's burdens. Talk about areas you're currently serving in the church, the joy that it gives you, the opportunity it gives you to minister. And then share ways you've seen God at work in your life or in this church over the past few months that that only God can get credit for, right? I mean, where is God working in South Canyon right now? That would be a great thing to talk about over lunch today. Where do you see God at work in ways that only He can get the credit? Not managerial oversight, not good shepherding, but God being credited for work that God alone does. Now, mind you, that simply getting together to talk about the Bible, to doing acts of kindness, to weekly gatherings, are by no means what makes one a Christian. Because people of any religion or no religion can do these things. There's book clubs. Drink some wine, have some coffee, they read a book together, they talk about it, and they do this on a weekly basis, and they all get along. What makes A Christian isn't what happens here in this service. It is, however, the receiving of the teaching of the Word as it were God's Word and not men's. That's verse 13 of our text. The teaching of the Word is that Jesus is God's Son, sent into the world by the Father to lay down His life as a sacrifice for sinners who rebelled against the Father, who rejected Him as their sovereign. They fought against His laws, and here He still sends in His grace and mercy His Son. And His Son doesn't come to wipe them out. He takes on the form of a human in order to obey the very law that we broke. He then becomes a martyr, a sin substitute for you and I. And yet God raised him from the dead. God put his stamp on him that he, in fact, is my son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus was more than a prophet or a religious teacher. He is the son of God. This is the teaching of the scriptures. And it is believing this good news about Jesus that makes one a Christian. And once the Spirit of God brings life to dead people, they can then serve as witnesses of this transforming, life-giving salvation found in Jesus alone. So what we do as a church in sharing the gospel with non-Christians, what we do as a church in knowing and caring for one another as evidences of God's saving grace, are the result of grace, not the means to it. We are actually called to live out the reality of our salvation, and we can't help but do it since God has given us His Spirit, a Spirit that prompts repentance, love, and good works. Now we move from the first 12 verses and talking about the nature of these men's ministry within this church to the church's response to their ministry. Verses 13 through 16, now if you were paying attention, that's only four verses, so this is going to be a shorter part, right? Paul mentions three positive ways the church responded to the faithful gospel ministry. And you'll see them right there at the beginning. They received the gospel message, they accepted it as God's word, not man's, and then they imitated godly churches. And then he articulates how others wrongly responded to faithful gospel ministry. And this is really important because we recognize the fact that not everybody who hears the gospel receives it as God's word, believes it, and then practices it. Some, in fact, reject it, and then they're done with it. Others will reject it and then seek to eradicate it. So looking at verse 13, look at the first part. You received the word of God which you heard from us. And Paul is thanking God constantly for this truth. There was good fertile soil for the gospel. Blessed be the name of the Lord. People are hearing it. People are receiving it. People are being changed by it. And this is God's work. And Paul and his companions are thanking God that the message was received, that these individuals were changed by it. Notice what else he says. You accepted the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men. And this is a time and a day, much like our own, ironically enough, a different medium. We've got social media. We've got instant blurbs on Twitter and posts and Snapchat and all these kinds of ways to communicate But back in that day, guys would come into town, they would beat a big drum, they would draw a crowd, and they would start teaching some philosophies, start trying to milk people out of money. And Paul's like, hey, when we came to you guys, we didn't use that approach. It's not like we created a whole new approach that was so countercultural that it created a niche for us, we got a toehold in the market. No, ours was simply to share the Word You guys filtered and figured out that this is not some new teaching from men, but this is, in fact, the revelation from God. So many in Thessalonica believed when they heard and received the message that it was from God and not man. So again, we are reminded of the effectual nature of God's Word. What does Paul say in verse 1? I'm so thankful, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. If you go to chapter 3 and look at verse 6, Paul again uses this as a reason for sending Timothy. I sent him to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Here's a man who's not interested in building a brand but a church, and he's concerned that the work being done would be undone, And yet he's finding out that, in fact, God's Word does such an effective job that not even persecution can keep this church from existing and growing. So, Christian, let me just tell you, you ought to have every boldness that when you share the gospel, don't even think about how well a job you are doing. You might stumble over your words. You might forget this one key argument that would win it all. And you know what? That's okay. Just be faithful in, in sharing with people the good news that a holy God loves sinners. That you as one of them has received this message of faith and you've accepted it and you want that person to share that joy, that forgiveness of sins. I mean, the confidence that we have isn't in our presentation. It's in the Word itself being true. And it is the Spirit who will bring the conviction of sin. It is the Spirit that will bring eyes opened, hearts that start beating again. We see Paul says that he is confident that God's Word is working and that these Members of this church, this group of believers that was formed into a church, accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really was, the word of God, which is working in them, verse 13. Now the question is, well, if God's word is so effective that it can make dead people come to life, then how is it that some people are actually rejecting it and trying to destroy the church? Because if God's word was strong, you know, wouldn't that all be happening? We've got a lot of military people here, and you know when you receive orders, you better do them, right? There's not questioning of them. There's not, ah, wait a second, I got this idea, sir. Um, Maybe we should try this. No, you don't do that, right? You follow instructions. And if there's authority there, you follow them unquestionably. If you don't respect that authority, you might You know, badmouth the boss with your co workers or fellow servants of the federal government, but you don't dare say anything to them. So, if God's so powerful, how come His work doesn't always, His word doesn't always produce the fruitful effect that it had in the Thessalonians? Well, that's a good question. And I would be happy to tell you a little bit more and answer more about that. The elders would be happy to do that afterward, but let me just suffice to say that from the text and with our short period of time this morning that I think Paul hints at it in verses 15 and 16, why the Word doesn't always convert people, but yet the Word is always working. Don't confuse those two. And I think this is an area that is a challenge for us as Christians, just Hear what I'm saying for a second. The Word of God is always working, but that doesn't mean the Word of God is always winning people to the faith. So, you look at verses 15 and 16. Those who dismiss and hinder the gospel are, in fact, responding to it, not with faith, but with rejection. So, the Word is at work in them. And it is stirring up the rebellion of their hearts against the holy God. It's proving, in fact, that they are sinners. And we know this. When the spotlight is shown on any part of our life that we are unhappy with, we don't like that light and we shrink back into the darkness, don't we? I mean, you just go back to parenting 101. Who ate the cookie? I didn't. So who are you going to blame? My brother. You don't have a brother. Okay? Okay. So, how do you get I mean, we don't want to be known for who we are, and we shrink back from that, and yet the Word is actually working because it's exposing the need for the Word, a need for transformation, a need for reconciliation with God, and yet this is not a response of faith from those in verses 15 and 16 who are persecuting the church, who notice they killed the Lord Jesus, they killed the prophets, they persecuted us and drove us out. Paul's departure wasn't because he was afraid. He was moved out of the city. He was driven out of the city. But this is also consistent with Jesus' teaching. If you remember the parable of the sower, you remember that? Guy's going out sowing the seed liberally. It's going everywhere. He doesn't care that some of it's fallen on a footpath, a hard, beaten path in between the rows, in between the different fields. He's throwing the seed out And where the seed landed revealed the quality of the soil. Was it a hardened footpath? No result. The birds came and ate it. Or was it in a stony or thorny soil where it quickly sprang up but then died off with heat or was choked out by the cares? Or was it good soil where it produced abundant fruit? So what we need to understand is as we share the gospel, we learn who's interested in it and who isn't. And that's what Paul was experiencing. Who will persevere in repentance and faith and who will fall away due to suffering, distraction and disbelief. But we ought to never doubt that the word is not working. It is always revealing the true nature of human hearts. So, if all these different types of hearts are pr- present on any given Sunday, even in a gathering like ours, how does the church and the elders know who is really in the faith? Well, as I said a few moments ago, if you've been reading through 1 Thessalonians in preparation, you will notice the many times Paul wrote, quote, you know, chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 2, we see it in verse 1, 2, 5, 11. We see it again in chapters 3 in verses 3 and 4, chapter 4, and even in chapter 5. Paul is reminding these Christians of what he taught, what they embraced, and the experiences they shared during the team's initial visit. Simply put, Paul knew these people and they knew him. So how does the church and its elders know who's in the faith? It goes back to... Who is it among us who is hearing God's word and obeying it? Not unhitching the wagon. Not just hearing, but hearing and doing, as James would say. Those are the people who are of the faith. Those are the people who have been captivated by the truth and the person of Jesus. And verse 13 makes it clear that what we do week after week in our public gatherings doesn't revolve around the opinions, the desires of men, we are ordering ourselves around the Word of God, and it's Him that we're gathering to hear from. Our obedience to that Word is going to be evident in our lives. And so how do we know who's in the faith? Well, we watch. We watch one another do life together. And Paul says, not only did you guys hear the Word and receive it as the Word of God, But you also, finally, in verses 14 through 16, you became imitators of other churches of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll notice as he unfolds this, that he speaks of suffering. So this church in Thessalonica is somehow connected to the church in Judea by same doctrine, by the same Lord, and then by the same experiences in that they suffered for the faith and they kept following God in the faith instead of abandoning it. Don't miss what, Jesus, or what Paul says in verse 15 about Jesus. You became imitators of the church and you are suffering the same things from your own countrymen, the Gentiles, that the, that the Judean Christians did from the Jews. And these Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out and they displeased God and opposed all mankind. They're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And this is a way in which they are filling up the full measure of their sins. So what Paul is saying is that while these Christians have have not shrunk away from the faith, that suffering is something that is a universal mark of God's people in every age and in every place, he's also speaking a word of judgment to those who are rejecting it. His point simply is that Those who are faithful to the God who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, in the person of Jesus Christ, will suffer for that faith. You know, my prayer for God's church and for this church is that when or if the day comes that South Canyon begins suffering for teaching and preaching God's Word and for living out the faith, that we will know that we are not alone and we will continue to be bold. This has been the way of the righteous since the time of Abel. Hebrews says his righteous blood cried out from the earth when Cain killed his brother. And why was it? Because Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain did. The righteous have suffered at the hands of the wicked from just a chapter and a half after the garden. It was true, not only in Abel's day, but through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, so Jesus would say these words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, is so in tune with what's going on when he says they killed the prophets as well. This is, it had become such a prominent, not anecdotal, but real experience for Christians to suffer for the faith that it became a statement. It became a saying, it was so prevalent, for the righteous to suffer at the hands of the wicked. That Paul would be able to speak about the fact that you guys are now numbered among the prophets in the sense you're suffering along with them. These Christians are in a place where they're going to be challenged in their faith. And Paul is reminding these believers that he told them at the beginning of his time there that suffering would come. If you, You'll find that in chapter 3 and verse 4 if the Old Testament prophets, if Christ himself, if these saints in Judea and the saints in Thessalonica and countless others since then would suffer for the faith, then we ought to expect to suffer for the faith. Now, there's a difference between suffering because of our sinfulness, right? Our mouths, our pride, our arrogance. And there's a difference between that and suffering for winsomely, Honestly, opening the scriptures and declaring them as God's word, authoritative. And then ordering our lives around them. And Paul wants these believers to understand that not only should we prepare for suffering, but we should also not prepare to just experience it, but to prepare so that suffering doesn't drive us from the faith. That was his concern for these people. And he's so excited that they imitated the gospel-centeredness of the church in Judea rather than just scattering as a result of pressure. As you look at verses 15 and 16, we get to the other half of the coin where some people follow the faith as a result of hearing it and other people reject it. And Paul, he speaks clearly about this. And I want us to understand this filling up the measure of their sins. There's there's something interesting here that Paul is referencing. That there's this idea that God's wrath is going to come upon sinners. It's clearly taught in the Scriptures. We see it throughout the Scriptures. In chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. But here Paul states... That these people who have rejected the gospel and are working to suppress it are going to receive wrath. That wrath, in fact, has already come upon them. And what he's doing is he's, he's pulling from this Old Testament theme that shows that God is going to allow people a fixed amount of sins to be committed after which punishment will be meted out. Where am I getting this? Well, if you think about Genesis 15 when, Paul, when God is speaking to Abraham and he's telling him about the land he's going to get, and he says to him, hey, I want you to know that the Amorites who are living in this land now that I'm going to give you, their sins haven't been filled up yet. They've not hit the threshold at which I'm going to judge them. So I'm going to send your people down into Egypt for a few hundred years, 430 in fact, and then I'm going to draw them back out and they will be my instrument of judgment against these Amorites. Daniel 8 talks about this, and this idea comes even in the New Testament. The verb fill up is found in Matthew 23, where Jesus uses it to describe the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what Paul is saying is, these guys' payday is going to come someday, and it's going to come soon. God's been patient with them, but there's an end to his patience. And the irony is that who is saying this? I mean, have have you forgotten who Paul is for a moment? Do you remember Acts chapter 8? This guy was previously known as Saul before he changed his Facebook image and cleaned and tried to scrub the internet. Saul persecuted the church. Saul broke up gatherings like this with officers of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and hauled people off to prison, he cast his vote to have Christians killed for leaving Judaism and going to Christianity. He was so filled with a righteous but misguided zeal for the purity of God, he believed that Jesus was, in fact, a heretic that he had made himself equal with God, that he had claimed divinity, and that was not true, and it was his duty to destroy Christianity before it got out of hand. This is the guy who's writing about people who oppress the faith. So how did that happen? How, How did one who had killed Christians, who drove out those who loved the gospel from temples and synagogues and homes, get changed. Well, Paul was evangelized by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And thus Saul, the persecutor of the church, and the persecutor of Christ, became Paul, the preacher of Christ, the caretaker of the church. Hearing and receiving the gospel as God's word and not as the teaching of man is what makes that change take place in people. It's God's word that makes his people. It was like this from the beginning. He spoke into existence the nation of Israel with a promise that he made to Abraham. He gave his law, a written form in the law to Moses and Israel. It was that very law that predicted that one greater than Moses would come. And Jesus described, or John is describing Jesus as the word made flesh, taking on human form and human weakness. So that God's word is power to create. His word, now the very Son of God, has become one of us. And so the message that we share with people, the proclaiming that Jesus is alive, that message has the power to transform, redeem people from sin, and turn them back to God. This is the message, friend, that we share. Not because we have a corner on the market here, uh, a truth that we are creating and propagating. It is because this is the stream of Christianity since the beginning. We long that people might know Jesus. That people might be set free by Jesus. That people might serve Jesus. And what we do here is an expression of the reality that Jesus has done that for us. And so let's celebrate godly elders, let's pray and work to raise up more godly elders because this generation of elders won't always be here, but the church will be here, it will endure, and it will need leaders. Let's recognize our responsibilities at church to care for one another, to know one another, to purposefully, intentionally seek out one another and build a relationship around the gospel. Let's continue to share the gospel corporately and individually so that men and women who are deceived and are hindering the work of the gospel might, like Paul, become converts of it and preachers of it. What a joy that would be to celebrate. Lord, we thank you for this word. It's a, it's a heavy word. It's, it's a great and good word, and we thank you for it this morning. We pray with a confidence that you are working all things together for your glory and our good, and that this church is intentional about what it does. We're not proud. We want to be humble. There's areas we need to grow in. There are things that we need to do better, but Lord, our hearts are toward you and we are willing to follow you. Lead us. Raise up elders and protect the elders of this church. Keep them from sin. Keep them from pride. Keep them humble and tender and thoughtful. Lord, let let us speak your word to this congregation and may they hear it, your word, and challenge us when we are not. Protect your reputation in this community, Lord. And we ask that you would do a great work in bringing an understanding of the gospel to this city and the surrounding communities so that many more will know you. In Jesus' name, amen.